0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for February 27, 2023. Here's today's rundown. The Justice Department reports that fraud against the U.S. under the False Claims Act has stopped $2 billion dollars tamed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman has standing by with details. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John Sellum, and Adam Brenman, who has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Now here's the publisher of RAC Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we were monitoring reports of the Supreme Court session last Friday, during which time attorneys for the U.S. Department of Justice warned the court that controversial rulings shielding corporations from the false claims liability, based on post hoc rationales, would be a boon for crafty lawyers. Fame whistleblower law attorney Mary Inman joins us later in the broadcast with a related story on the False Claims Act. In the meantime, we have much health care news report, and so we begin, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. <laughs>
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here, now making his Monday Rounds, is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today, I have two stories. The first is about a newsletter sent out by one of the
2: Medicare contractors about how they intervened in a hospitalized patient's case. The patient was admitted with chest pain and elevated blood pressure. Testing was done and medication started. When after three days, the patient was told they were being discharged, the wife called this contractor, noting that her husband's blood pressure was still not normal, and she felt he needed more time in the hospital. It was not clear from their description if this was a formal discharge appeal or simply a complaint about care, but nonetheless, the contractor intervened and either convinced the doctor to let the patient stay another day or ruled in favor of the patient and mandated the continuing stay. Either way, it's just not right. First of all, three days to work up chest pain is more than enough time for that evaluation. But I don't have the records to know if that was appropriate inpatient admission or whether it should have been done as observation, but that's aside. More importantly, the medical goal in a case like this is not to get the blood pressure of that patient normal in three days. In fact, that's more likely to lead to overtreatment and risk hypotension and its dangers. Secondly, there is no ICD-10 diagnosis code for spouse discomfort with discharge. That's simply not a valid reason for a continued stay. And with the widespread issues with ED boarding, this patient inappropriately occupied an inpatient bed needed for another patient. I doubt the contractor inquired how many patients were boarding in the ED. And what if that patient got up at night to go pee and fell and broke a tip? Will the contractor face any consequences? Not a chance. Hospitals are for sick people, end of story. This contractor was wrong to intervene as they did and wrong to call this a success story. The next story is about an inpatient rehab facility that was able to get authorization to admit a Medicare Advantage patient. Yes, they were shocked too, but they provided excellent care and the patient no longer needed that level of intensity of care, so they arranged for a transfer to a skilled nursing facility to continue the patient's recovery. Like in a hospital, they provided the follow-up IMM and informed the patient. Well, the patient appealed to the QIO and the QIO sided with the hospital. Then the patient called their MA plan and the MA plan accepted the appeal and sided with the patient. What happened here? Well, first, if a patient appeals to the QIO, they're not allowed to appeal to their plan. They can appeal again, but only through the QIO. The plan should have directed the patient back to the QIO. Second, the MA plan knew this patient did not meet ERF requirements and seemingly made their decision based on payment. The MA plan was paying the ERF a per-admission rate, and they did not want to now have to pay for a SNF stay. So they said the patient can stay at the IRF, and they would, quote, continue to pay, unquote. Oh, the games they play. Chuck,
1: back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM Ronald Hirsch. MD Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel and good morning, Nicole.
3: Hello and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I'm sure you can tell that my voice is a little squeaky today. I've got a cold, not COVID, just a cold. Well, I want to talk about the No Surprises Act that was signed into law December 2020 and what it has a new dispute resolution process for providers. So a key component of the act is the establishment of an independent dispute resolution, IDR, process to resolve payment disputes between health plans and providers. So we want to explore the IDR process and how it works. Under the IDR process, when a healthcare provider and a health plan are unable to agree on payment for a medical service, either party can initiate the IDR process. The party initiating the process must submit a request to an independent dispute resolution entity, which is typically a third-party arbiter that has experience in resolving payment disputes between health plans and providers. The arbiter will then review the relevant documentation and make a determination on the appropriate payment amount for the medical service in question. One of the key benefits of the IDR process is that it allows for an independent review of payment disputes rather than relying on the health plan to make the final determination. This can be particularly beneficial for healthcare providers who may be at a disadvantage in negotiating payment with large health plans. The IDR process supposedly provides a fair and impartial mechanism which can help ensure healthcare providers are fairly compensated for their services. Another benefit of the IDR process is that it can help protect patients from unexpected medical bills. Under the No Surprises Act, patients cannot be balanced billed for out of network emergency care, air ambulance services, or non emergency care at an in network facility if they did not have the opportunity to choose an in network provider. The IDR process can help to ensure that providers are fairly compensated for these services, which can help reduce the likelihood of patients receiving unexpected medical bills. The IDR process is also designed to be relatively efficient and timely. Under the No Surprises Act, the IDR process must be completed within 30 days of the request being submitted. This means that providers can receive payment for their services in a timely manner, which can be particularly important for small practices or independent providers. However, there are some potential challenges and limitations to the IDR process.
4: One potential
3: challenge is that the independent dispute resolution entity may not be able to fully consider all of the factors that may influence the appropriate payment amount for a medical service. For example, the arbiter may not be able to consider the provider's actual cost of delivering the service, which may vary depending on factors such as geography or patient complexity. Another potential limitation of the IDR process is that it may not address the underlying issues that lead to payment disputes. In some cases, payment disputes may arise because of disagreements about the appropriate level of reimbursement for a particular service. The IDR process can help to resolve these disputes on a case-by-case basis, but it may not address the broader issues related to health care pricing and reimbursement. So, the IDR process is established now and it's going to help providers with getting reimbursements and a new type of appeal process. I'm curious to see how it works. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up at about, uh, well, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Healthcare Attorney David Glazer, Adam Brenman, Fame whistleblower attorney Mary Inman and Dr. John Zeller who's standing by to summarize today's Monitor Monday top stories. It's Monday. It's February the 27th. And you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Get essential radiology coding education anytime, anywhere with the comprehensive radiology all-access pass. This powerful all-in-one solution is ideal for organizations that provide a broad spectrum of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Besides keeping everyone on the same page, the Comprehensive Radiology All-Access Pass enables your team to earn the CEUs they need to stay credentialed. For a single subscription fee, a Comprehensive Radiology All-Access Pass gives you unlimited access to every radiology how-to resource in our extensive library e-books, coding charts, live and on-demand webcasts, a monthly newsletter, and blog content. This is the ideal knowledge transfer solution for teams of all sizes, ensuring that everyone is referencing the same reliable information and following the same rules and best practices. The comprehensive radiology all-access pass is available at MedLearn Media.
1: Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say, every Monday morning, what could be risky
5: this morning? Chuck, it's the risk that you're unnecessarily refunding money. So it's really a tough time for hospitals, and every dollar counts. What if I told you that most voluntary refunds are one-third larger than necessary? It's common for organizations to go back six years when making a voluntary refund. That's unnecessary because the law only requires a 48-month look-back in most cases. Now, it's certainly true that the 60-day rule, which is at 42 CFR 401305 f requires that an overpayment must be reported in return when it's identified within six years of the date that the overpayment was received. Understandably, this leads most people to conclude you have to go back six years, but that ignores two really important points. First, you only need to go back 6 years for an overpayment. The Medicare regulations only allow the government to reopen a claim for 48 months unless there's fraud or similar fault present. You can find that at 42 CFR 405.980B is in boy. The 60-day statute defines an overpayment as, quote, any funds that a person receives or retains under title 18, that's Medicare, or 19, Medicaid. To which the person, after applicable reconciliation, is not entitled under such title. That's the key phrase. If the government doesn't have the money to as ta- doesn't have the authority to take the money back, you're entitled to it. If you're entitled to it, that means it isn't an overpayment, and you don't have a duty to refund it. So, absent fraud or similar fault, after 48 months, what you've got isn't an overpayment. I would posit if you haven't heard this from your health law counsel, you need new counsel. Moreover, this isn't the only reason that six years should be discounted. Section 1870 of the Social Security Act requires the federal government to waive an overpayment when the recipient is without fault. That provision also creates a statutory presumption that the recipient is without fault when the overpayment is sought more than five years after the year. In which payment was received. The 60-day regulation effectively ignores the provision of the law. Now, when the regulation was proposed, it originally contained a 10-year look back, and I submitted a comment indicating that the regulation was inconsistent with the statute. CMS's reply didn't directly address my comment, but they did discuss a similar Social Security Act section, 1879, which is another law that requires waiver of overpayment when the recipient is without fault. Here's how they dealt with it. We believe it's inappropriate for providers or suppliers to make determinations regarding their own knowledge of non-coverage, or whether they were the cause of an overpayment in lieu of reporting and returning an identified overpayment as required in this rule. That's what they said at 81 Federal Register, page 7666. I think the 666 is no coincidence. um, I'm going to call just the excrement of bulls on this, right? There's a law. The law is the law, and CMS can't plug its ears and go, na 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 I'm not listening, and just ignore a statutory provision. For that reason, I tell all of my clients to go back 48 months on a voluntary refund. Now, let's say the government disagrees and insists you really need to go back six years. How indignant can they get? You've voluntarily given them four years' worth of money and been totally transparent while you do so. I've had clients doing this for years and years, and it has not been challenged. And I think there's a good reason this hasn't been attacked. The analysis is sound. So if you're looking for a way to save some money, limit your refund, look back to 48 months. And consider getting a new lawyer if yours hasn't suggested this. I agree with Huey Lewis in the news that you certainly don't want to bet your future on one roll of the dice. But I don't think you're doing so if, when you go back in time... You limit your trip to 48
0: months.
5: Chuck, back to you.
1: <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was health care attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And up next, Adam Brenman with the Monitor Monday legislative update.
0: The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide.
1: Here now is Adam Brendman.
0: Thanks very much, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I'm about to spice
6: things up a bit here at the top, but please stick with me. Chuck... I'm Sydney and I'm in love with you. I just want to love you and be loved by you. This was part of a dramatic exchange last week between a New York Times reporter and an artificial intelligence chatbot. Now today I'd like to further examine the muddled world of artificial intelligence in healthcare, particularly chat GPT, an artificial intelligence or AI large language model developed by research and deployment company OpenAI and its potential applications in medical practice. For example, did you know that ChatGPT has already demonstrated its ability to pass the U.S. medical licensing exam and diagnose certain health conditions? Kind of scary with a hint of science fiction, no? While versions of ChatGPT can be used in a variety of industries, recently a digital platform for medical professionals released a version of ChatGPT uh, tool for physicians that help streamline some time-consuming admin tasks, such as drafting and faxing prior authorizations and appeal letters to health plans. Believe it or not, the federal government reports that at least 70% of healthcare providers still exchange medical information by fax. This is a shockingly high number in this day and age. The provider community, however, appears mostly excited about the potential applications of AI platforms like ChatGPT in and healthcare, especially as administrative burdens like those I mentioned a moment ago are a leading contributor to burnout. Using such an AI feature, allows providers access to a growing library of best medical prompts where the AI-based writing assistant has been trained on healthcare-specific writing styles. Medical prompts on the site include drafts of request letters to insurance companies, appeal denials, medical disability letters, and post-procedure instructions for patients. This frees up providers' time to focus more on actual patient care. Now, the ChatGPT functionality is not all pie in the sky. According to Google and Microsoft officials, one of the potential drawbacks of ChatGPT is the existence of implicit racial bias in health data, which for AI tools to work properly in healthcare must be accounted for. This is an extremely complex problem to overcome. Additionally, many physicians and researchers have cautioned that the technology has many limitations, specifically with medical citations and references, which are often inaccurate or even made up entirely. So, providers must make absolutely sure to review and confirm the accuracy of materials produced by the AI functionality before they are used, submitted, sent out, etc., Finally, AI technology appears to have a trust gap, especially in the healthcare sector. A recent survey found that more than half of Americans polled don't approve of the federal government using this type of technology to help process Medicare and veterans benefits, nor are they comfortable conversing with an AI chatbot for average health questions. Homing in on specific use cases in healthcare could build needed data to help bolster trust, which could also inform future federal regulation in the area that would improve trust as well. One thing I know I'll be watching for is how the FDA continues to revise its published set of guidelines for using AI as a medical device to establish and maintain, quote, good machine learning practices. Due to the nature of the practice of medicine, the bar for AI is higher in healthcare than in many other fields. And ultimately, chat GPT functionality for healthcare purposes is still in its infancy, with many tests and improvements needed in technological, bureaucratic, and regulatory areas. But more broadly, there is extraordinary, extraordinary enthusiasm about AI's potential to modernize workflows across entire healthcare platforms, while cultivating the industry's ever crucial triple aim of improving the experience of care, improving the health of populations, and reducing the per capita cost of care. So along with AI romance and search tools, the advancement of and reliance on such AI tools in healthcare certainly seem here to stay.
1: As you heard at the top of the broadcast, the Justice Department is reporting that fraud against the U.S. under the False Claims Act has topped $2 billion. Here now with the details is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman.
4: On February 7th, the United States Department of Justice released its annual report of its civil recoveries for fraud against the United States under the Federal False Claims Act, showing $2.2 billion recovered in False Claims Act settlements and judgments for fiscal year 2022. In addition to being a report card to the DOJ on how it performed in the past year under the False Claims Act, one of DOJ's most significant tools for rooting out healthcare fraud, the report provides an important look at emerging and persistent trends in False Claims Act enforcement. Let's explore some of those trends. First, the data released by DOJ shows the critical role that whistleblowers play in securing these recoveries for the government. Of the $2.2 billion recovered, $1.96 billion, or 89%, was recovered in cases initiated by whistleblowers under the False Claims Act. Second, as in past years, False Claims Act recoveries in the healthcare and life sciences industries continue to dominate enforcement activity in terms of the number and value of settlements with healthcare fraud cases comprising 80% of the total recoveries and spanning a wide range of theories, including Medicaid fraud, unnecessary and substandard care, unlawful kickbacks, drug pricing, and Medicare Advantage fraud. The largest of the 2022 healthcare recoveries was a $900 million settlement with Biogen to resolve allegations that it offered and paid kickbacks in connection with certain of its multiple sclerosis drugs. This recovery, this recovery was notable for several reasons, including the fact that the whistleblower who helped achieve the $900 million settlement 10 years after filing the Keith Hamm case received a record-breaking $266.4 million reward, reputed to be one of the largest awards ever received by a whistleblower. The case is also notable because it was the largest recovery ever obtained under the False Claims Act in the de- declined case. Meaning, in a case where the government declined to intervene in the whistleblower's matter and the whistleblower pursued the case on her own. Here, the whistleblower and his attorneys pursued the matter on their own for over 10 years after filing the Keycham complaint before obtaining the $900 million settlement. In fact, notably, over half of the $2.2 billion total recovery under the False Claims Act in 2022 was achieved by whistleblowers in cases where the government declined to intervene and the whistleblowers pursued recoveries on their own. Let's say that again. Over half of the total recoveries last year were in cases that the government chose not to litigate. The other notable FCA healthcare recovery in a decline case last year was a $51 million settlement with the Florida Birth-Related Neurological Injury Compensation Association. In that case, whistleblowers accused the association of shifting costs it, it should have reimbursed onto Florida Medicaid, despite the fact that Medicaid is supposed to be the payer of last resort. While fiscal year 2022 did see an increase in new KETAM filings over previous fiscal year 2021, several details stand out. First, new healthcare TCHAM actions declined this past year, continuing a pattern we have seen over several years. Indeed, new healthcare TCHAM filings are declining even more than new filings overall. Second, the False Claims Act has not seen the significant increases in new filings that both the FCC whistleblower program and CFTC whistleblower programs have seen over the past years. Third, the increase in new FCA filings, which occurred outside of the healthcare and Department of Defense space, is encouraging, but the total new filings have not kept pace with increases in government spending in healthcare and defense. While DOJ's FCA recoveries are impressive in many ways—in um, for in fact, since 1986, the False Claims Act has returned more than $72.5 billion to taxpayers—we should nonetheless be alert to signs of brewing trouble behind these big numbers. Strengthening enforcement of the False Claims Act is the best way to recognize the importance of whistleblowers and the best way to recover taxpayer dollars. Active enforcement and meaningful whistleblower protection and rewards are essential to encourage whistleblowers to come forward and report fraud that may otherwise go undetected. That's it for me. Back to
1: you. Thanks, Mary, very much. Uh, that was famous of attorney, Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. And a program note next Monday, we'll be reporting a remarkable story about creating a transfer center at the University of Kansas Medical Center. It's all part of our observance of National Doctors' Day. And then coming up next, we're going to have some questions when David Clazer joins us. But first, this important message.
0: <music> Confusion arising from coding and billing for observation services has plagued hospitals for a long time, and today the waters are muddier than ever, thanks to shorter hospital stays, stricter payer guidelines for inpatient admissions, difficulty in arranging post-acute care, and other factors. To avoid trouble with payers and auditors, you must understand and apply the latest coding and billing requirements for observation services. Get a jump start on your comprehension with guidance from Dr. Ronald Hirsch during an essential on-demand RAC Monitor webcast. Dr. Hirsch conducts an A to Z review of observation services in 2023. He breaks down significant 2023 changes to coding and billing requirements for hospital observation services, including new physician E&M coding rules. Dr. Hirsch's webcast is now available on demand at the RAC University Bookstore.
5: David, uh, do you have a couple of comments you want to make? I've got one quick question. The question is, what is fraud or similar fault? And so the regulation has a specific definition, which is to obtain, retain, convert, seek or receive Medicare funds to which a person knows or should know that he or she uh, or another for whose benefit the Medicare funds are obtained, retained, converted, sought, or received is not legally entitled. So that definition is a little broader than I would like, um, but at least in my uh, experience, judges have operated using the term closer to the way most people think of fraud. So, Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much.
1: And joining me now for a recap of today's Modern Money News Stories, here is Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is a founder and the CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting. Dr. Zellum, what's your impression this morning?
7: Well, good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. I, I find the stories that uh, Ron Hirsch uh, uh, told us very interesting. And lately, I have been working on a concept of prevention versus correction. And we spend so much time, energy, and money correcting all of the problems and probably the biggest field that this occurs in is in denials and I recently saw a report that came from Change Healthcare their 2020 revenue cycle denials index and they have a breakout of the top denials root causes and it's put the put, and I love the way they phrase it potentially avoidable denials top root causes from 2019 to 2020 and the the, the one service that got covered that would normally not get covered as Ron related was the services not covered came out to be according to this study 10.6 percent. So for those of us and many of of you are also involved, if, excuse me, in fighting denials, appealing them, and peer to peers, how many times would you have a situation that this that this payer approved of that you got denied on? I would venture to say more than 99.9%. But yet, when the payer does it, it's okay. And all it does is reinforce to me that the the payers, the, the Medicare Advantage organizations, play by their own rules. And we are just the pawns in that game. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. John Zellum,
1: for your insight and analysis. Dr. Zellum is the founder and the CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting. Thank you very much for being with us today, and thanks to Adam Brenman, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman who reported our lead story, and, of course, Dr. John Zellum. And one more thing before we go. When we're not on the air, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Spotify, Apple, and when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. That's when we conclude our observance of American Heart Month. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Monitor Monday is a
0: presentation of Rack Monitor.